This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Bearden is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau and out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome back to our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. And now that the season is officially over, it's been over for a couple weeks now, I have time on my hands to get back into the podcasting. And uh, first, I just want to say, man, what a uh, what a 60-game plus-two sprint that was. Uh, if you're not aware, my other job duties involve working in the communications department, so I was doing a lot of uh, in-season stuff, which is why I wasn't able to do more podcasts during that time. But nevertheless, what a... Uh, different season and, and historic in different ways than we were used to but nevertheless it was a season so uh it was like I said quite the sprint so here we are and to get back into the swing of things this podcast I think it's going to be fascinating I had a chance to interview a gentleman uh, named Brian Powers who is a an architect and if you're on Twitter he goes by at Sports Bandbox. And what uh, is extremely fascinating about his account is he spent, I don't know how long the last one was, but he did uh, Comiskey Park. He, he focused on Comiskey Park, and as an architect, he has 
you know, access to some cool software that he knows how to use. And he was able to reconstruct Comiskey Park as to what it, what it looked like in a 3D rendering. And, um, you know, you might be thinking, okay, well, it's Chicago and this is a Cleveland uh, podcast. Well, uh, when he finished Comiskey and I was scrolling through Twitter, I happened to see his next project was going to be none other than Cleveland's famous League Park. And I got really excited because there's only so many pictures of League Park out there. And you know, we have the ballpark with the fence and the ticket house and part of the wall still left. But it's hard to really wrap your head around what League Park would have looked like, what it would have been like to walk through the, uh, the stands, walk through uh, the stairways and get into the ballpark and see all these different odds and angles that we might not have pictures of. So Brian's next project that's currently going on is League Park. And uh, again, if you follow the Twitter account, I'll share some of his photos on Twitter and, and on a, hopefully a blog post as well that you know he's, he's building it from the ground up and it's been extremely fascinating to see. When I had a chance to chat with Brian, I wanted to know, uh, is this something for like a, a grander project? Is this, or is this just something that's a, a labor of love because, again, with baseball, there's so many different avenues you can get into uh, in terms of studying the history and pursuing your passions and, and the interweaving. And as an architect, I got to imagine for Brian, it's pretty cool to apply that to the old ballparks and really see them at an angle that others might, now that they're no longer standing, really uh, bring some stuff to light that we might not know of. So again, my first question with him was, you know, what's what's behind all this? Sure, it's uh, truly a labor of love. It's uh, you know, being a baseball fan all my life, uh, I think I've always had a fascination uh, with the places they played. You know, just as much as the players themselves. I mean, I've always been the one to want to experience the ballpark. You know, taking it all in. Aside from watching the game, I, I think just being there and part of. Uh, the neighborhood fabric that exists is, a, is an experience within itself. And as I got, uh, got an older, I'm an architect by trade. So I've always had an appreciation for, uh, all things design wise and, uh, uh, baseball parks are certainly no exception. And I've always been, always carried that fascination with me. And I think as I've gotten more seasoned, uh, it's, as a fan, I've become more appreciative of a lot of these old ballparks, uh, especially going back to the first generation when the newer ones like the League Park, Miski Park uh, were, were built. And uh, in some respects, I've always been amazed how little uh, is left and how little people know about them. And I think as time goes on, I think it's important uh, as an architect, you know, we, we, we try to preserve a lot of these things and uh, the legacy, you know, so much legacy of baseball lies in these uh, baseball parks. I think uh, it's important to preserve the legacy of those just as we do the records. And uh, it's always been a kind of a hobby amongst myself uh, to make sure that happens. And uh, I did, I did, uh, did the same with Comiskey park and, uh, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to, you know, doing the same thing with a league park moving forward. As someone that's obviously not an architect or into any sort of, uh, programming or design like that, I always find it fascinating to see these projects and, you know, the, 
the scale that they're on and all the intricate details and the work that goes into them, my first question really, again, was where do you start on a project like that? I mean, the history person in me knows that you have to hit the archives, you have to dig up what you can find, what's still around uh, that will help you. But then once you have all that at your fingertips, like where do you go? Do you start at the pitcher's mound? Do you, uh, you know, start at a, a corner somewhere? But uh, Brian was able to answer that for me as well. It's, uh, it's kind of a long process, and it, it, it evolves over time. Uh, uh, I think starting with a league park, I mean, I was actually researching old Comiskey Park uh, at the time. And uh, if you followed uh, my, my account there, it's kind of a 30-year process, you know, acquiring, you know, drawings, photographs, and things like that. As, while I was doing research on that, uh, I did have the opportunity to, to visit Cleveland, Ohio, which is the home of uh, Osborne Engineering. And this was back in the, the mid-'90s. And uh, Osborne, for those who are not familiar, uh, was a, an engineering firm that designed League Park, amongst uh, including uh, other ballparks like Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park, uh, and they also had a hand in Comiskey Park, you know, with later renovations. So as I was visiting their office, researching that, uh, I was able to uh, look at the other drawings and some of the other information they had, and certainly League Park and the old linen drawings. Uh, I was really amazed by the beauty of the park uh, that's not captured in photographs. I mean, a lot of times you look at uh, magazines and photographs, newspapers, it's kind of the same pictures uh, all the time, but you start to see a certain side and a certain beauty of a facility, you know, when you see it in, in the drawings. So I, I kind of planted a seed that, hey, uh, I'd love to sometime be able to uh, find a way to recreate this, somehow get the word out for people to experience it firsthand. So that kind of fueled the fire as I started to uh, look at drawings, uh, accumulate photographs. Uh, and over time, uh, I was able to, uh, to get prints of a lot of this stuff. So it's like a big piece of a jigsaw puzzle. So acquiring the information almost takes just as long, if not longer, than to actually build the model, like what I'm doing right now. So what I'll do once I get this information is map out a general workflow and game plan. Okay, do I have enough information on the site? Do I know the dimensions? Uh, so it's important to understand that the order in which I build things is it's critical because it informs other smaller details of the park. You know, as an architect, I attempt to place myself in the shoes of the original engineers. I try to find out why certain design decisions were made and insinuate them, you know, into my projects. I'll start from the broad aspects, you know, including uh, the site, the ball field, and the overall geometric layout. Then from there, I'll digitally model uh, what I call like a kit of parts or a family, like the steel components, you know, the wall assemblies. I'll do all this stuff separately in computers. So I basically will have almost like a model kit, if you would, which can be assembled, you know, into the ballpark as if it were actually being built. I build it much like the original contractors did, you know, back in 1910, you know, talking about League Park. I'll start with the structural bones, you know, followed by the, the grandstands themselves, work my way up with the enclosure, things like the seats, the interior, uh, concessions, all that stuff is installed you know, once everything else is in place. So the software I use, uh, it's actually digitally modeled in a, in a software called Revit, R-E-V-I-T. It's, it's powerful building information modeling software, which is widely used in the construction and design industry. You know, when used correctly, a lot of the material data can be extracted from this model, which is great for research and comparisons. So what so will be fun is, you know, taking this data and information from League Park, I can compare it to Comiskey Park, which I've already done, built the same year, and just kind of see how the technology 
has changed. And I think it's really opening opening up a new dimension, you know, in terms of research, uh, things like that. We're just scratching the surface of it. The cool thing about it is once I'm finished, I'll have the ability to import this digital model into a virtual reality platform, you know, like Enscape to create interactive virtual experiences like walkthroughs, 360-degree pans, you know, which can be seen on Twitter feed and whatnot, as well as my website. Uh, I try to create the model where I can, where, where I only have authentic documentation, so I know everything is authentically real, and the experience can be real at the same time. And if you're listening to this podcast, odds are you're a big fan of history. So listening to Brian talk about all the work he's done and and the end product of what you get out of a project like this, it's just uh, it's fascinating and extremely exciting to have an ability when he's done to get as close as you can to seeing what a game was like at league park, because again, there's not much video footage left from league park. There's not a whole lot of uh, photos comparatively to, you know, municipal stadium or other uh, old ballparks. So this is going to, um, you know, be as close as we can get. And also, as he mentioned, there's going to be stuff you can pull out of this uh, rendering that will tell you about League Park that you might not get from other resources. And I think that's extremely valuable to the history of League Park and to the history of uh, what you can get out of it from an architectural standpoint as well and just the history of baseball. I also wanted to know what he does when you're missing information. Obviously, you're not going to be able to dig up every single blueprint or every single angle of League Park. So what do you do in a situation where there's a blank spot, like a movie or something, adding that uh, uh, artistic license, so to speak, in terms of the what you don't know. But again, with architecture, there has to be you know certain things where this wall has to hit that wall or else the building's just not going to stand. And this was Brian's answer. A little bit of both. Uh, I think both with uh, my League Park and Comiskey projects, the information has been pretty tight because uh, I've been fortunate enough to have documentation, you know, to do that. But uh, there are certain areas where, you know, as an architect and engineer, you have to make somewhat educational guess, guesses. But uh, the cool thing about it was uh, you could go into a place like uh, Fenway Park, for instance. You know, uh, uh, when Osborne renovated it in, 19, in the early 1930s, a lot of the same details there were actually used uh, in places like League Park. So you can kind of get an idea as to what it's like to walk through the portals, you know, the, uh, the railing configurations, you know, some of the small details, you know, maybe some people might overlook. Uh, but, uh, you know, things like uh, interior color schemes and stuff like that, there might be a little bit more, uh, I think, liberty uh, to try to fill in those assumptions. Uh, I was fortunate enough, uh, there's a gentleman who got into the uh, uh, first base ruins of League Park before they tore down those first base stands and was able to get pictures of what it was like in there. And uh, you can faintly see, you know, the color scheme, you know, the, the blue painted columns and things like that. So sometimes you just stumble upon information and uh, you combine that with other experiences that are out there elsewhere. And then you try to connect the dots that way. What I love about league park is just the, I don't know if I want to say awkwardness to it, but if you go to league park, you just, you walk around and you look at that big right field wall or how deep center field is. And it's a unique ballpark. And there's always something that sticks out to you anytime you go visit it. And I wanted to know from someone who was actually building it from the, the ground up, 
Was there anything that stuck out to you about League Park in terms of, again, building it, so to speak? Well, what's interesting about League Park is uh, it was designed not only did you have to you have a very confined site, it's a very rectangular site, but uh, uh, when the park was designed uh, and opened in 1910, there was very little precedent you know, to go on. I mean, I think you only had Forbes Field and Shide Park in Philadelphia. Those were the only two newer generation ballparks that were built, and people were still learning and experimenting with different things. And League Park was uh, no exception. Uh, I think you know, as I studied the plans, I think there were some very clever methodologies that were used to maximize the playing field and uh, get the most out of the site. Uh, like, for instance, you know, we, we know that uh, League Park has a very short uh, right field line at 290 feet, but uh, in order to, to get that 290 feet, they had to move the grandstands build the grandstands as close as they can to Linwood uh, Avenue, uh, pretty much right up against it. But the cost of that was you couldn't really put any amenities, you know, like uh, concession stands or anything on that side. So looking at the plans, it's interesting how League Park, uh, they kind of loaded everything on the first space side, you know, like the clubhouses, restrooms, you know, things like that. So they used the site very cleverly, you know, with what they what they had uh, to work with. And, uh, you know, uh, League Park didn't have the luxury of having large real estate, you know, like four Field, Comiskey uh, Park, like that. So instead of having internal ramps, you know, like a lot of these other parks, they relied on a very elaborate set of stairs. I think there's, uh, I think I counted out, there's 10 stair towers, you know, scattered throughout the park, which people went up and down uh, to get out of the, the facility, uh, while other parks, you know, relied on ramps. So all these things, you know, minimize the footprints and maximize the square footage, you know, on the inside. You want to get as much seats in there as possible. And I think a lot of it too is uh, just what they did. I, I think one thing in looking at the engineering specs uh, that I thought was very interesting was uh, the old wooden park that was there uh, after the 1908 season. Uh, instead of uh, tearing it down and hauling it away, uh, they actually recycled the old wood and used it as uh, form boards, you know, when they poured the concrete, you know, for the new stadium. So you're on such a tight construction schedule, they really had to maximize everything they had on site to get the park built within uh, the six month time frame uh, for the 1910 season. When Brian mentions they actually used parts of the old league park because it was a wooden structure before they went to that concrete and steel version, uh, but that they used that wood as part of the new construction, uh, I thought that was a pretty interesting fact. And maybe it's one of those things, again, you don't find in the newspapers because the general person of you know 1910 didn't really need to know that. So I was curious where he found that information. Yeah, so these were, uh, yes, Osborne notes or, or engineering specifications. Uh, I was lucky to uh, find a copy of those uh, through the city of Cleveland. And uh, a document, I don't think it's really been circulated all that much, but it really was a treasure trove uh, as to how they did, how they did things. Um, so, yeah, I had all the kind of the, the requirements and kind of what the ground rules were for the contractor, you know, when they took over the site after the 1909 season. If you've been following along uh, before this podcast to Brian's Twitter account, I think the uh, most surprising thing so far that he's tweeted was this random men's room that's uh, on the first base side. You could see it from a photograph he posted of uh, a player sliding into home. But this restroom, you could see out a window 
to see the field as, you know, if you had to take a, a, a timeout during the game. And it's those weird quirks that you don't see in the history books or, you know, that no one rely or relayed to a newspaper account or one of those things that uh, I know people always bring up Muni and the troughs and that sticks through time. But this little uh, restroom at League Park, again, goes to that bigger picture of all these little quirks that if not for this project, we might never know about um, just because it was day, daily life in the, the 19 teens and throughout League Park's lifespan. And again, no one was taking photographs of the bathroom or anything of that nature. So I wanted to know more about that particular uh, tidbit of history. Yeah, I, I, that's something that really came up is I was actually three-dimensionally modeling the park. I mean, I've seen it in plan and, uh, you know, you could see very minimal traces of it in photos, but it's always been kind of concealed. And then uh, as it started to rise, you know, three-dimensionally, I'm, I'm looking at it and I think, I think you could actually view the field from it. And uh, what's nice about the technology we have, I was able to, uh, you know, create this bathroom three-dimensionally and uh, where the window was placed. Now, I don't know if this was by design, but uh, if it was, it sure was a very impressive effort. You could uh, actually physically watch the game while using the restroom at the same time. I don't think any other major league ballpark since uh, has had any feature like that. I found that very fascinating. And after seeing that particular nuanced view of League Park, I was curious, through all his renderings and construction, was there anything else unique to League Park or maybe trend-setting or, or whatnot? Because, again, it's a, a puzzle that he's uncovering that is telling you know, historians and fans of the game what League Park was actually like. Uh, one thing I, I thought was uh, pretty interesting, too, is uh, I was talking a little bit how small the building was and how every piece of real estate was valuable. Uh, since you really didn't have the ramps to bring things you know, up and down from the bottom to the top, uh, the actual League Park actually had a small little dumbwaiter right behind home plates where uh, – they could uh, load it up with ice and refreshments to service the concession stands, you know, up on the second deck, which is something I've not seen in any, really in any other ballpark. You know, it's like a little elevator, you know, that they, which was pretty high tech at the time, you know, they put the stuff in and then uh, deliver it upstairs, you know, fast and, and quickly. So, you know, just a small operational things like that. And I, I think what I find fascinating is I always like to see or look at how people use the ballpark and what's the experience like. I mean, that, that's a good, good example of it. Uh, there's very little uh, women's restrooms. I think there's one women's toilet, you know, uh, down on the main level. That was it. I mean, it was just all kind of a uncharted territories, you know, when it came to designing ballparks. And I think a lot of the lessons learned from League Park, designers were able to uh, perfect in other ballparks, you know, as they embarked on a building boom in the next uh, several years. And as Brian mentioned, there was only one uh, one ladies' room. And as someone that doesn't read blueprints, I wouldn't know where the first place to start. Um you know, looking at those, I was curious how much information you could glean from that. Would it tell you, uh, you know, if you have one ladies room and you have ladies night at the ballpark, um, actually ladies day, they didn't have lights at league park, but it just didn't seem feasible to have, uh, if it was, you know, a small restroom or anything of that nature. So, um, 
you know, what, what do these blueprints have in their detail and, and what else can you extract from them to complete this picture of League Park? Yeah, I, I think it had uh, probably three or four realistically, but still wasn't wasn't enough. Uh, interestingly, though, they, they called it a retiring room, ladies' retiring room. <laughs> so you you know they, they go in there it's like a little vestibule, and uh, then uh, had sinks and stuff, and then uh, you go into another room adjacent to that is where you know they used the restroom. But you know, I think if you look at the demographics of the people who attended games during those times, I mean. Uh, you know, a lot of men, a lot of businessmen, you know, came during the day and, uh, you know, women's attendance was a lot different in those years. So you didn't quite have those same ratios you know, like you do now. In fact, the league park, it kind of reminds me, they also had a coat check room where kind of like when you go to a theater, you know, you give the usher a jacket, and he'll put it away for you. So you see a lot of these characteristics, uh, like of the old movie houses, you know, program elements of those things, you know, taken into uh, the realm of baseball. And with League Park, I was also curious, what was modern in 1910 when they had a chance to take that wooden facility and make it into uh, a state-of-the-art, up-to-date ballpark? I would say it's the way they detailed and constructed uh, the concrete, particularly the uh, the decks and the columns. Uh, up until that point, uh, concrete and the engineering that went with it was somewhat, I would say, proprietary. But uh, you know, engineers and contractors kind of had their own ways of mixing it. And uh, when League Park was built, you know, it was one of the first few parks, you know, that was technically fireproof, you know, so to speak. That's really kind of set the bar for professional standards, you know, that are still used to these to this to this day. You know, uh, like I said, you could you could you could go into a few later parks, you know, like Fenway, for instance. A lot of things, a lot of the details you see around maybe that park, like the 1930s part of it, uh, were originated uh, at League Park, you know, which was uh, the first ballpark designed by Osborne Engineering. And uh, the lessons they learned from that, they employed, you know, later on. But, uh, but yeah, aside from the ballpark, I mean, uh, that, that office was, was groundbreaking uh, in terms of the way they detailed steel and everything like that. So from a technical standpoint, uh, it was groundbreaking in a sense that uh, standards were developed and accepted nationwide, uh, not only ballparks, but, you know, for bridges and uh, high-rise construction, which was starting to become more popular at that time and uh, th- things like that. I also wanted to know if Brian was going to be able to recreate the front office layout of League Park, again, as someone who... When there's not a pandemic, heads into the office every day. I was curious to see what he'd be able to conjure up in terms of the offices. I mean, obviously a lot different than they are today. And uh, this was Brian's response. Well, I'll definitely uh, have uh, the ticket office and uh, the space that uh, consisted of the office. Uh, I, uh, it's one thing I, I don't have is what the actual office 
layout was inside that ticket building. I mean, I have the ground level with the uh, uh, with the turnstiles and uh, the gates, you know, that directed you to the various classes of seats. But uh, that's still one thing I'm looking for as to what the uh, what the uh, 1910 configuration of the interior, you know, that office is. Uh, there are some pieces or some ways you can put together pieces of that puzzle. Uh, like I know, if you go into the museum now, they actually have an internal set of stairs, you know, that uh, go from the ground level to the upstairs. Well, you know, those weren't there in 1910. You know, the only way you could access the, the second floor was through a set of metal stairs on the outside of a building. So you can kind of drive, you know, small things like that to kind of put the pieces together. So that's something I'm hoping to uh, to achieve. As someone who loves old ballparks, I've been fortunate enough to go to Fenway and Wrigley and check out those ballparks. Uh, I was curious if the Tribe Never Left League Park, if it could still technically function as a ballpark today, or was there just too much that would need to be done, obviously, to make it uh, up to MLB standards today? Um, you know, How much work would have gone into it? I mean, you look at Progressive Field, I think it's one of the top 10 oldest ballparks in baseball and the amount of work for a ballpark that was built in the you know early 90s to make it modern today is still astonishing and it's one of those double-edged swords of a Wrigley or a Fenway where you have to do a lot of uh, work to make them up to standards for today but again the nostalgia and the history to them is something that you can't manufacture you can't build that it has to be uh, earned over the years. So I was really interested from an architect's point of view, what would have been needed to keep Lee Park functional today? I, I often think about that, you know, as, I, as I'm working through this project, I mean, if it was still around, uh, what would it take to bring it up to uh, current standards? Uh, I, I think given the success of uh, what we see in the technology we have these days, you know, we saw the transformational projects, you know, Wrigley, Fenway, uh, I guess you could throw Dodger Stadium in there now, although it's not not quite as old. Uh, I, I think if there was really a vision and people were on the same page, uh, I think it certainly can be rehabilitated. Uh, I mean, to bring it up to uh, uh, 35,000-seat stadium, which uh, which is kind of the kind of the smaller end of the benchmark for Major League Baseball. It might have been kind of difficult uh, unless you commandeered other land around it. But uh, I, I think League Park could certainly, you know, if, if things were still there, uh, it could be uh, adaptable. But yes, I mean, th- th- there are things that can be done, I think, internally. I mean, one byproduct, which I think would have been hard to do, is uh, the drive for premium seats. But uh, I think... Lee Park it was such a treasure. Uh, I, I think uh, much like Wrigley Field and Fenway, I, I think the experience uh, could uh, certainly help sell itself. But uh, all the other like media requirements, uh, things of that sort, yeah, there probably would have been uh, quite a bit of rehabilitation to take place. I would have envisioned probably something like what they did to Shy Park, uh, which also known as Connie Mack Stadium. They pretty much uh, rebuilt the entire upper deck and put a third deck, you know, for the press. Maybe extended some seats. Uh, you know, the outfield league park, uh, believe it or not, I think had a little bit of room to grow. Uh, I think there's a proposal. You know, you had the you know, small section of bleachers down the left field line. Uh, original drawings actually had that extending all the way to uh, Lexington Avenue. So that could have been a whole uh, separate section of seats, which could have been upper deck as well, much like uh, Tiger Stadium would have. So, yeah, there's actually room to grow. Uh, they probably would have had to acquire some land behind that you know, for other amenities. But, 
but there's certainly some initial thoughts there. One thing I did forget to me- forgot to mention is I was uh, researching the park and the drawings. There was actually there were actually plans in place to build a third deck press box, but uh, 1920, but uh, it was never built. You know, the, uh, the idea was uh, the section of grandstands and behind home plate, uh, they're going to rip off the, the front end of the roof and then build uh, a third tier of about five rows uh, to handle press and other seating, much like the crow's nest at uh, for Forbes Field, uh, you know, the press boxes at Old Tiger Stadium uh, would have been very similar to that. So there's definitely a vision there. I, I think, you know, there's always other factors uh, that are involved, but I, I think League Park, uh, you know, there could have been some opportunities there. But uh, games change, neighborhoods change, and uh, you have to be able to uh, adapt to that. I wanted to backtrack a little bit uh, about the computer renditions he's doing and how long it actually takes to complete a project of this scale? Actually, uh, uh, what you see on my Twitter feed is uh, pretty much as it happens. So uh, what you're seeing is a real, a real live-time build uh, as I'm creating it. So I might put in a, maybe an hour or two each night, and uh, as I progress or if I think I get to a, to a point where some people might find it interesting i'll do uh maybe a screen rendering of it or if i find a uncover a factoid or something i'll try to find a creative way to share it but everything you see uh during this process is uh pretty much happening real time uh not much is done in advance Uh, it's more uh kind of as i feel the need to share it another thing i was interested in with all the construction that brian's been doing on the computer what it would be like to do a rendering of Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Was it doing like apples to oranges? I mean, obviously, Municipal Stadium was such a mammoth uh, stadium, you know, ballpark, football, it kind of had everything versus League Park, which was kind of tucked into a neighborhood. It'll certainly be a different animal. Uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, if if I were to do or take on Municipal Stadium, for instance, uh, it would be very much the same process as I did with uh, Comiskey Park. Uh, you know, it's a big, it's almost you know, three hundred and sixty degree stadium, uh, much bigger. You know, almost uh, three times the capacity. So there's a lot more details, a lot more things. You know, that would have to go into it. A lot more documentation to research. Uh, certainly. Yeah, I think the process would uh, take longer, uh, obviously, I think due to the size, but uh, I think the challenge uh, would be be about the same. I, I, I think uh, there'd be a lot of interesting things uh, to uncover from that. Uh, but certainly, yeah, I would, uh, yeah, that'd be certainly a different animal to take on, but I think it'd be fun. I, I thrive on those kind of challenges and uh, much like League Park, uh, definitely Municipal has its uh, share of stories uh, to tell. Another thing I asked about was, are there any things that League Park just might take to the grave with it that we'll never be able to figure out because maybe the blueprints are gone or there's just no photographs that exist that might help uh, close that gap or fill in that missing puzzle piece? Uh, Let's see. Probably... I think I'd be interested in finding a little bit more about uh, uh, 
believe it or not, the, the bleacher areas. Uh, there's, there's a little bit more ad hoc at that time, but uh, things like uh, uh, the scoreboard, uh, you know, uh, what the setup was like in there. I know you had, uh, uh, I just had a very rough diagrams to what the layout was, you know, behind the scoreboard, like uh, how, how they store the numbers. Uh, do they backload the numbers or do they front load them? You know, when they change them out in the manual scoreboard. I, I've seen it done, you know, both ways. I think that would be interesting to kind of see logistically, you know, how, how they how they did that. Uh, and I, I think really it's just, uh, I think what was interesting also is uh, League Park was somewhat uh, self-sufficient. Uh, I know they've, uh, they've had their own uh, printer in there. They printed up their own programs, tickets. Uh, everything was done on site. I kind of would like to see that operation uh, a little bit. You know, things like that. And... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think those are the kind of questions. I mean, it might might seem minute, you know, in terms of detail or maybe insignificant to some, but uh, I think all those are part of what some of the pieces of the puzzle, you know, turn out to be. As I mentioned before, I'll be sharing out some of uh, Brian's pictures, and if you want to see them for yourself, you can check out uh, bandboxballparks.com for his website or Sports Bandbox, that's his Twitter handle. And again, we'll, I'll try to share some of those from my account and a blog post. But I do really appreciate Brian taking the time to chat with me. It was fascinating, and uh, his project on Leak Park is not done yet, so uh, I'm hoping to see a lot of neat aspects coming up down the line with as he gets closer to finishing it and hopefully it's going to tell us a lot more about league park and what it was like to catch a game there and help us combine you know when you actually go to league park and walk around and now you can have another image of it uh when uh when you see this project so go check out that website and, and Brian's Twitter account, and I think you'll be impressed. I just love seeing his weekly updates and really look forward to those. And once again, thank you for joining us on Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can conquer it i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road any road the steeper the better because my all-new santa fe is available with h-track all-wheel drive so i can hit the trail without a worry in the world 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.